From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Thanks so much for being with us for this episode of Electionomics. Today, we are talking about what it's going to take for President Donald Trump to make it back into the good graces with voters. He continues to trail presumptive uh, Democratic nominee Joe Biden in most polls, in most polls by double digits, and he is losing ground in swing states like Florida and Texas. Joining us now to discuss is Shai Akabis. He is Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Shai, good to have you join us here. Um, let me just ask this sort of open-ended question. Uh, what could President Trump do now when it comes to the economy that might have people thinking differently about how he is approaching coronavirus? Well, thanks, Alexis. It's great to be with you. The key here really is going to be the path of the pandemic, because I think the path of the economy is really going to continue to be determined by the path of the virus. So ultimately, the most important thing that the president can do to uh, instill confidence and have people believe that he's taking the country in the right direction is to marshal a federal effort that really helps us get a grasp on this virus and prevents this, what we're seeing right now, which is sort of a second wave or a second part of the first wave from getting any worse. If we continue down the track that we're on right now, there's no way that we can start a full economic recovery. And so everything else becomes almost moot. But beyond that, I do think that a large federal response in terms of additional spending is necessary at this moment because we're seeing the employment numbers begin to slip again and some other indicators as well recently with the uh, more rapid spread of the virus and doing something at a federal level to continue to prop up the economy as we move through the rest of the summer and into the fall is going to be critical to make sure that this doesn't become an even worse economic situation than it already is. Shai, as we're uh, having this conversation, is uh, having this conversation, Congress is debating the next stimulus bill. We are going to have a bill for sure. It's going to be between $1 trillion and $3 trillion. Uh, that's those are the parameters set by the Republicans at the bottom and the Democrats at the top. There will be additional unemployment aid. There will be probably another one-time stimulus payment of around twelve hundred dollars. Um, what's your guess about how much that will help the economy uh, in the? And we're really talking weeks now, leading up to the election in November. Well, look, the difference between doing nothing and doing anything between one and three trillion dollars is going to be enormous. You know, in any normal time, those numbers, one to three trillion, would be, it would be un unthinkable because it's far in excess of anything that Congress passes on a regular basis um, in, in terms of something that has such a large effect in a short period of time. Because we are infusing cash in a variety of different ways into the hands of consumers, into the hands of businesses to keep things afloat. How large it is will matter further and, and how that money is spent will be even more important. So for example, uh, state and local governments are really getting hammered by this because payrolls have been down, they rely a lot on state income taxes, and they're not collecting those like they usually do. They have balanced budget requirements, which means that they're laying people off. They're gonna continue to do that until they can stem the bleeding. So federal aid there is critical. An another area, childcare, schooling, you know, to allow us to go back to a more normal state of things in the fall, and I say, I say more normal, it's not gonna be back to normal, but getting children, especially young children, back in a place where parents are able to be free to work is also going to be essential to restoring the labor market. 
Let's talk about uh, sort of a bone of contention in this new stimulus plan, which is um, the unemployment insurance. Um, and there has been talk that, you know, the, the, that $600 a week is just too high. A number of Americans are actually making more sitting home, collecting uh, on insurance, uh, the uh, employment insurance than they are when they're working. Um, do you think that, the, is that, is that legitimate? I think it is. I mean, it, there are a lot of factors that we should consider when constructing the unemployment insurance policy. So I don't think by any means this is the only thing that we should think about. So for example, childcare is incredibly important too. Until we fix that, a lot of people aren't able to go back to work. But you know, frankly, about 20% of people are getting paid twice as much through unemployment as they were through their jobs. It's estimated that two thirds are getting paid more than their prior wages. That's a, that's a significant number. And on the margins, that's going to have a, make a difference in terms of people returning to the labor force. And even more importantly, as we hope to start the labor market recovery, once the pandemic becomes more under control, that's going to serve as an inhibitor to getting people back into work. Because some people are going to be affected by that incentive, especially if it's extended for another long period of time, like six months or even longer than that. So we need to be thinking about what the right policy is to get those incentives appropriately balanced. What we've proposed at the Bipartisan Policy Center is to keep that benefit at an additional $400 a month relative to the 600 that it is today, and additionally send another round of what are called recovery rebates, or basically the checks that went out in the spring to help provide additional relief and prop up consumption further. So we won't get that drop in aggregate demand that you would see, and we're also making sure that we balance the incentives between staying home and going back to work. You so think it looks like you might get your way, I, I would say, because I mean, if you have the Democrats, they want $600 a week, uh, and uh, Republicans want 200. Well, the middle of that is 400, which is your number. Well, that would be great. I mean, we've we've certainly been in touch with a lot of folks on Capitol Hill. I think there are a lot of others that are involved in this this discussion. But ultimately, our goal in the at the bipartisan policy center is to make a difference towards constructive policies. So I think it would be good if they landed in that place. This is obviously only a small part of the package that's needed, but it's an important part because we've got somewhere north of 30 million people who are relying on these benefits right now. And if they were to just get the rug pulled out from under them it would be almost unfathomable in terms of the consequences, not only for those households, but for the economy at large. Do you think though that $400 that you mentioned would be enough to maybe change voters' minds, people who might've been on the fence about, about the president? Maybe they see him pass something like this, they go, you know what? Okay, I can get on board with that. You know, I'm not the best political pundit out there, but I, I, you know, I do think getting the answer right here is more about preventing uh, an avoidable um, you know, misfire, where if, if we don't have a package or if we have a package that is dramatically underwhelming and not um, attuned to the moment that we're in and this inflection point in the economic recovery or fledgling recovery, you could say, then I think it could really have further deleterious consequences for the president's uh, political hopes because Ultimately, he is, you know, the buck stops there. And if, if people are seeing that the response from the federal government is not meeting the moment, then he's likely to take some res outsized responsibility, not outsized, but a large portion of the responsibility for that. So it seems likely that we are going to have a package by uh, passed by early August, mid-August at the latest. Um, it's probably going to be about $1.5 trillion. That's a lot of money, Shai, as you pointed out. And we, we, we are going to get some kind of uh, ongoing um, unemployment added added a federal benefit there. So my question, Shai, is um, you know we're we're still down about 15 million jobs, and uh, there are signs that uh, the economy is not actually improving; it's going the other direction. It, once that stimulus passes, do you think that will be enough to 
um, make people feel like the economy is getting better in the weeks before the election? Or is it just going to be enough for us to tread water where we are without any real tangible improvements? That's a great question. I think the answer, again, comes back to the path of the virus. If the virus progresses in a way that it continues to be out of control, we have tens and tens of thousands of cases every day and uh, above a thousand deaths on a, on a daily basis, I think almost nothing that the federal government can do from an economic standpoint is going to make it feel like we're really progressing into a recovery. If I'm, because people are just going to be scared and their behavior is going to stay affected in that way. I mean, that, that's basically the status quo that we're at right now for the foreseeable future, right? I agree. I mean, if things take a turn for the better, as they did in, you know, if you just think back as early as recently, I should say, as you know, May, early June, things were looking up and things were improving. So if we get back to a state where that is the case, and perhaps even more so over the next several months, I think that there is a possibility that this type of additional support from the federal government could jumpstart the beginning of an economic recovery. At best, though, I think unemployment is going to stay in at the high single digits, if not the double digits, through November. And so that's going to paint an economy that is in a troubled picture, if not a devastating one. Right now, over 50% of households have had some employment impact in terms of the income that they're taking in uh, affect them. And when that's the case, you know, unless that number goes down dramatically, I think it's hard to see people feeling really good about where the economy is. Yeah, but we actually got consumer confidence numbers from the conference board this week, and they showed that especially uh, the short-term outlook has really gotten quite dire for a number of Americans. Uh, and I guess no surprise to find that's happening in states where the virus is raging on. Uh, states like Florida, California, Texas, Michigan, also very low confidence. And people didn't have a lot of confidence in their own finances. Uh, I mean, right now you have one in every five Americans or about 30 million Americans receiving some sort of unemployment insurance, which brings me to my next point, Shai. All of this spending, all of this pandemic spending is really doing a number on the deficit. And I know you have a, something called a deficit tracker at the Bipartisan Policy Center. You look at the deficit and trends month over month. Uh, June represented another record-breaking deficit. I'm looking here, $864 billion. How much of that came from- That's for one month. Right? And should we be caring? I mean, because, right, Rick, we talk about it all the time. A lot of politicians say, we, we have to spend now. We cannot worry about the deficit. Yeah, I mean, it, all those points are correct. You know, it is unfathomably large. Uh, these are unprecedented deficits. We've never run deficit monthly deficits that are this large. The deficit this past month was almost as large as the deficit for the year in the prior several years. Um, but I think that last point that you made is critical. Right now, we need to focus on what is squarely in front of us, which is providing the aid that the economy needs. If we don't do that and we get into a downturn that's even worse than, say, the Great Recession, and it looks more like a depression, nothing we do on deficit reduction is going to matter because we're just going to be in for a world of hurt regardless of what the federal response is on fiscal policy. So we need to make sure that we support the economy through this period. Hopefully this period that the crisis is raging, or the pandemic is raging, will be shorter rather than longer because the longer this goes on, the more it's going to cost. But until we get to the other side of that, we really can't start to worry about reining in fiscal policy. That said, when we do get to the other side, there's going to be a very large problem waiting for us. Well, uh, how, what, what kind of problem is that going to be? I mean, uh, you know, budget hawks have been saying for years, literally, maybe decades, literally, uh, that the U.S. national debt and the, in, the annual deficits are so large, they're going to be they're going to. Uh, 
uh, have a crowded start to cause a crowding out problem. Interest rates are going to go up and so forth. And it has not happened. So what is that problem going to look like when it finally becomes a problem? Yeah. So right now we expect that in this fiscal year, the debt may exceed 100% of GDP. It might be larger than the size of our economy. The only other time that has happened in history is right after World War II, when it was 106% of GDP. Within a year or so, we'll be beyond that. So this is uncharted waters for the US economy. The worst part about it is that we're headed in a direction where that number is going to climb without stopping. And for the, that's unsustainable by definition. We don't know when we're going to hit a wall and interest rates are going to spike and some investors are going to lose confidence that we're going to repay all of that debt. But it will happen at some point if we keep going on the path that we're on. So responsible policymaking would say that we need to gradually put in place reforms to spending and revenues that bring us more towards a sustainable path. That's what the Fed share has called for. That's what CBO directors have called for. That's what a lot of us on the outside have called for. And that's what Congress is ultimately going to need to do. The challenge is that there is no, you know, there's no red flag moment until you hit that spot where investors begin to lose confidence and you're having to pay a lot more in interest rates and it's crowding things out of the budget and it's slowing economic growth. You don't really see that until you're in the middle of it. So how we're going to get to a point where we can get the political will to address this challenge, I haven't figured out quite yet. And right now, it's even t tougher to figure out than in normal times because we're experiencing all of these additional challenges on top of that. Just for just for context, Shai, when was the last time there actually was sensible bipartisan policy on fiscal matters? In the 1990s, there was a bipartisan agreement from President Clinton and a Republican Congress where they actually balanced the federal budget in four consecutive years. It can be done. We know that. There was also a deal struck in 2011, um, in the, the the first time in the modern period where there was a real debt limit, um, you know, uh, loggerheads where the two parties were at odds with one another, and they passed some meaningful deficit reduction policies, particularly on domestic and defense spending. The problem is a lot of that has been unwound in deals that were a lot less responsible since then. We need reforms to more of the lasting programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, taxes. We need a lot more revenue to support the spending that we have decided to do as a country. All of those are changes that need to go into effect over time until Congress reckons with that and really you know, puts their heads together to try to make a compromise in that area. We're likely in for these continued unsustainable deficits. Alexis, you know what a lot of people in our universe here at Yahoo Finance think? They think uh, the Fed can just wave a magic wand and fix every problem. Wouldn't have, were it that easy, Rick? Were it that easy? And Shai, I want to talk about the Federal Reserve for a minute because you actually uh, worked alongside Fed Chairman Jerome Powell before he was the Fed Chairman. Uh, he had done some work at the Bipartisan Policy Center. What do you make of, of the Fed's response to the pandemic? Have they done enough? Are they not doing enough? I mean, this, this week we found out that they're going to extend their emergency lending programs. They were going to expire the end of September. They're now going to have them go through the end of the year. And what more could they possibly do? I guess other than turn rates negative, which we know is something President Trump has been needling Powell to do. Yeah, you know, I think the Fed is really pulling out all the stops and, and they've done what you would expect the Fed to do. And Chairman Powell has been in that leadership role. And I think it's it's really admirable. And, and we should be thankful that we have him in that post because he is someone that really knows how to build consensus. He's someone that knows how to stay level headed in the midst of a crisis like we're in right now. But ultimately, what he's emphasized, I think rightfully, is that Congress is going to need to do a lot of the heavy lifting here. 
the, pad, the Fed, as he continues to say, has lending powers, not spending powers. And that's really important. They can help provide liquidity to businesses or other entities. They can't, though, allocate federal dollars where it's needed. So they can't do things like unemployment insurance and direct payments to individuals and direct payments to businesses or direct payments to states. All of those things need to come from Congress. There's a limit to how much the Fed can do to help us through this recovery, but I think they've done most of what they can. They've implied, they've very heavily indicated that rates are going to remain at rock bottom for a long period of time. And they've opened up all these facilities in fairly short order to help provide that liquidity that it will be necessary for many businesses and other entities to get through this crisis. Say has lending powers, not spending powers. And that's really important. They can help provide liquidity to businesses or other entities. They can't, though, allocate federal dollars where it's needed. So they can't do things like unemployment insurance and direct payments to individuals and direct payments to businesses or direct payments to states. All of those things need to come from Congress. There's a limit to how much the Fed can do to help us through this recovery, but I think they've done most of what they can. They've implied, they've very heavily indicated that rates are going to remain at rock bottom for a long period of time. And they've opened up all these facilities in fairly short order to help provide that liquidity that it will be necessary for many businesses and other entities to get through this crisis. Shelly, so let's, uh, I want to ask you about a couple of election scenarios. So if um, Trump wins in November, we know it's almost certain he will, there will be a Democratic House still, so divided government. If Biden wins, he could win with divided government if Republicans take the Senate, keep the Senate, I mean. But he also, it's also possible uh, that if Biden wins, Democrats could take the Senate. So, so now some of Biden's agenda starts to look possible or perhaps plausible. Uh, he wants to raise taxes. He wants to raise the uh, business tax from 21% to 28%. He wants to raise uh, the top one or two income tax brackets on wealthy Americans. Do you think he can do that if um, the Democrats have a small majority in the Senate? It's tough to predict that far ahead, but I think that they will certainly push towards doing some of those things. One thing that's notable right now, and, and you saw it in a plan that um, the vice president released just recently, is the racial inequities that we that this pandemic has brought out even more to the forefront in our economy. We, we've known that they've existed for decades, but on many issues, whether it's you know emergency savings or student debt or employment wages, all of these things, wealth, all of these have discrepancies. And a lot of the proposals that I expect you'll see out of the uh, vice president that we have seen already and that we'll continue to see and that Democrats will likely push are things that try to close those gaps. Whether they can get enacted, I think is, is tough to predict right now. Part of that will come back to how Democrats decide to legislate, whether they are looking to compromise and make progress on some of these or whether they are trying to push the envelope. And there's been discussion about getting rid of the legislative filibuster. That would make some of this easier to accomplish, but it would also make it easier to roll back when government changes hands. So I think there's a lot of open-ended questions there. Ultimately, any Senate is going to be pretty closely divided. So the amount of revolutionary policy change that can be enacted is relatively narrow. But these are a lot of important topics that not only his agenda is hitting, but that others on the outside are talking about too, that Congress should really be turning back to once we get past the throes of this pandemic. Shai, we know that President Trump has said time and time again, he's not going to raise taxes. You were talking a little earlier about the deficit, the ballooning deficit. And at some point, it's going to come to roost and that we're probably going to have to raise taxes to help bring that down. If Trump were to win re-election, is he going to have is he going to have no choice but to raise taxes to, to get on the other side of this pandemic and start to bring that deficit down? 
Substantively, yes. There is no way that we can get out of our fiscal challenges without bringing in more revenues. We're bringing in, even prior to the pandemic, something like 17, 18% of GDP in revenues and spending well north of 20%. And that was projected to go on for you know as long as the projections go. And we just can't have that be the case where we have this widening deficit over time. There's no way that spending can be brought down by that much. A lot of the programs that people rely heavily on, like Social Security, like Medicare, Medicaid, even if we make reforms, they're going to take a while to go into place. And we're not going to dramatically pull out the rug from under seniors. So we're going to need additional revenues to come into the federal government. Whether the president and Congress will be responsible enough to see that and make that decision and put it into place, you know, that, that's a politically tough thing to do because nobody wants to see their taxes go up. But ultimately, if we don't do it in time, we're going to be in for much worse economic consequences when we sort of come back to bite the bullet on, well, excuse me, when we come back to bear, the, bear out the reality that an ever-rising debt will put upon the country. I want to go back to Biden's plan for a moment. Um, uh, he's, he has had a lot of uh, things to say about his economic plan during the last few weeks. He calls it the Build Back Better plan. He's got four pillars. Uh, you're familiar with his uh, economic plan, Shai. What do you like about Biden's uh, ideas and what do you perhaps dislike about his ideas? Well, you know, I, I should say I haven't studied it as closely as I, I need to and, and probably will in the coming weeks. But one thing is bringing in more revenue, as we just talked about, is critical. Uh, to fund the the government's main um, uh, you know pillars of government, the the other element that I think is necessary is sort of taking a new look at the the economic opportunity issues in terms of making sure that people have enough savings, um, that student debt does not remain a burden around the neck of young adults that they can't get out from under throughout the course of their life. Now, in some of these policies, I think that the direction that he has gone with his platform is a little bit further to the left of, frankly, where I think the right policy is or is likely to be realistic in a, an environment where you do need bipartisan support to get these Can policies across. Give an example? Yeah. So, you know, when, when it comes to, for example, student loan forgiveness, a lot of folks on the left feel that we should just be forgiving either all student debt or a certain amount of student debt for everyone. In fact, that's really not the most progressive policy because a lot of people who have student debt are actually higher income individuals who went to graduate school and took out $100,000 and they're now making back the earnings to get a um, to, to have that degree pay off for them. Forgiving their debt is not doing anything uh, that, that we should really be prioritizing as a federal government. A much more sound way, I think, to go about that would be to say that you only pay back a share of your debt, a share of your income that you can afford in terms of your student debt monthly payments. And that is something that, that would be a compromise between where the two parties have been previously. We can talk about the generosity of that plan in terms of how much income you should be you know, needing to pay back a portion of. But that would take an approach that would be more progressive, actually, than just forgiving debt, because it would say that if you have low income, you actually don't owe any debt payments, whereas somebody who did get rewards from going to a degree program where they paid a lot of debt but are now making six-figure salaries, they are still on the hook for paying that back, as they should be. Yeah. So, Shai, you work at the Bipartisan Policy Center. There's not much bipartisanship left anymore. Uh, we live in hyperpartisan times. Uh, even polls show uh, people align themselves more with the left and the right than the center than they used to. Do you feel like you're just on a sinking piece of ice in a warming ocean? Uh, or is there really meaningful, uh, moderate support for bipartisan ideas out there still? Well, that, that analogy hurts, but, but um, you know, I, I think I like to remain optimistic about this in the sense that people tend to overlook the bipartisanship that we do see. You know, if you look back at what's happened over the past couple months, 
we saw Congress pass four bipartisan packages, in some cases almost unanimously, on very short turnaround to address the uh, problems that we're facing right now with the pandemic and the economic fallout. We're clearly seeing a little bit more difficulty on this fifth round and on a lot of the underlying issues that have persisted over time. But I, I tend to believe that we need bipartisan policy in order for it to be durable policy. If one party is making policy that's just gonna get reversed by the other party when they come into power, we don't really have a system that can be stable and that we can rely on, particularly in the economic realm, into the future. So what I think the pandemic has shown is that there are these underlying economic problems in our society that relate back to this theme of economic opportunity, making sure that not everybody's gonna have the same outcomes, but everybody has an equal chance in the economy to succeed. And I think both parties can get behind that, and that's what we at BPC are really stressing when it comes to a lot of these pocketbook issues. All right, we are gonna leave it there. Shai Akab is Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Thanks so much for uh, spending time with us on this episode. Yeah, thanks Alexis and Rick, really appreciate you having me on. All right, be sure to rate and review what you just saw and heard. You can follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman, never been banned. <laughs> no, Twitter still allows you to be on their platform, right? Never Last been time. banned. Thanks everybody, we'll see you next time.